Good morning. Thank you. You can take your seats. I feel already like I'm full. The worship was awesome. That was a great message. Thank you, John, around communion. So I feel like we could pretty much go to the cafe. <laughs> but we won't. <laughs> I have to say, though, it's a real privilege for me and Stacey to join me this morning to be here with you. And I really felt a a great sense of community and family when I walked in the door this morning. And I just appreciate that. You know how you can go to most churches around the world and you can walk in and there's something that connects us. Clearly that's our God. It's our love for our God that connects us. There's nothing like it. You can't walk into a restaurant and feel like that. You can't walk into a social club and feel like that. But when you walk into a church anywhere around the world, you can just sense God and you can automatically feel welcomed. And I hope, I really hope that that people that join us that are not part of our church normally, when they come and they visit us for the first time, I hope that that's their experience as well. And I'm really confident that if they come into this house, that they do feel that because I really feel you're such a warm, welcoming family. So thanks for having us this morning. As Gary mentioned, we're looking at the names of God and today we're looking at the name Elroy. L-E-L-R-O-I. And that name means the God who sees me. The God who sees me. This is a really descriptive name. It's not just a God who sees, a God who has sight, has vision. He's an observer. It is the God who sees me. This is a really personal name. This name highlights one of the beautiful characters of our God. It highlights to us that he deeply cares about us, that he has our our personal needs in his thoughts, that he sees us as individuals, that he knows us intimately and he cares about us so deeply. It's a beautiful, beautiful name. So let's have a look in our scripture. We've got quite a bit of scripture to get through today. So we're going to have a look in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis is the first book of the Bible and we're going to look in chapter 16. So verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. What, like, wow. Like, <laughs> this is going to be a good story, I promise you. <laughs> so, verse 3. So, after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, very silly man, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Abram is feeling very unwise to me at the moment, but nonetheless we will push through. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I am running away from our mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much so that they will be too numerous to count. 
Verse 11, then the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahoi Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Now, that is a massively full account. And I just want to remind you here that this is not a parable that Jesus told to explain a story or to, to give us an example. This is a true historical account of what actually happened in people's lives. And I think, like, I look at those voice verses and just about every one of them I go, uh-oh, there's trouble brewing here. What is going on? And there's so, so much in those verses that we can look at. There's sin there's adultery, there's people taking matters into their own hands, there's abuse, there's people um, giving into corruption because they've gained position and power, there's a lack of trust and faith in God to keep his promises, there's people fleeing from the problems and the messes that they've created and there's blame casting and lack of responsibility taken all over the place. So today, before we look at that portion of scripture that brings out God's name, Elroy, the God who sees me, I just don't want us to brush past all of the things that happened before that in the beginning of that chapter. So first, let's take a look at Sarai. Now, she is actually later on the mother of the nation of Israel. She is a faithful, great woman. But here we see her waver in her ability to stay in her faith for the promises that God has given her and that he will fulfill them. And you know what? I'm really grateful that we get to look back on the not just all the beautiful moments, but the not so pretty moments in someone else's life, that we can gain perspective, that we can learn from God through those moments. So let's have a look at a few of them. In verse 2, Sarai actually blames God for her not conceiving a child. She declares to her husband, the Lord has kept me from having children. And then Sarai then goes and offers her slave girl to her husband for her to conceive a child. Now, let's just remember, at this time in history, this is actually quite a normal thing to do. So if you are a barren woman and you have slaves, it is quite normal within their culture for them to offer their slave to their husband to conceive a child. And should that happen, the child is actually classed as Abram and Sarai's child and is gain, gains all the inheritance and heir that Abram's firstborn child would have. So Hagar is actually basically just a surrogate mother, although it is actually her son. But then after all of that, and let's remember, these are godly people. So just because it was okay in their culture doesn't mean it was okay for them. But after all that situation inevitably turns very, very bad, in verse 5, Sarai then goes and blames Abram for the predicament that they're in. But before we go ahead and we judge Sarai, let's just consider that... And, you know, we often would think, I would never do that. 
How could they be so silly? But let's just remember the lack of medical attention that they had in those days, the lack of medical intervention that she could have had. Remember the cultural pressures that she was under. Remember the shame that it was for her not to be able to have children. And let's consider the waiting and the build-up that has led to Sarah wavering in her faith. Because I know what my Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. So I don't want to judge her in that place. But now let's have a little look at Abram because he is by no means off the hook here just because Sarah was a bit silly. In verse 4, he actually slept with Hagar. Now, clearly, they didn't have... This was fairly early on in creation, so they didn't have the history that we now have today. But I'm pretty confident that it's never gone well for a man who has slept with someone other than his wife. I'm fairly sure that that still exists. And just remember, as I said before, these were meant to be godly people. They knew better. So even though it was culturally acceptable for them at that time, it was not okay for them. And then Abram goes on and he says to Sarah in verse 6, he handed Hagar over to his wife to be treated as Sarai light. I want to say, has the guy got rocks in his head or what? Like honestly, your wife has done, made this massive mistake and now he hands this poor young girl over to her to be treated as she liked and as we saw, it wasn't so good. But again, we can't judge Abram, but rather we need to learn from the lessons that he teaches us. Both Sarai and Abram had a responsibility here. First of all, I want to have a look in both Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. God actually gives Abram a promise that he will have children. Now, Genesis 12, verse 2 says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. In Genesis 12, 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Twice already he's promised him. And then let's have a look at Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. It says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And verse 2, but Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the, Lord of, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And verse 6, Abram believed the Lord. He believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. So here... God gives Abram and Sarai the promise of children, their own offspring. And given though, I want to explain here, though these chapters here, you see at the end of these scriptures that Abram is actually 75 years old. And now we go ahead to where we're reading, which is, seems like it's only a chapter away, because it actually is only a chapter away, but it's actually 11 years now, 11 years is a very long time for you to wait for God to fulfill a promise for you. So I can see and I can understand how they wavered in their faith because 
I know that 11 years of believing for children, 11 years of believing for a promise that God has said multiple times to you before is still a long time for someone to wait. So that's why I say we can't judge Abram and Sarah for their mistakes. But we can learn from them. And we need to learn from Abram and Sarah not to grow weary or to lose faith in our waiting. There's another lesson that we can learn here for the husbands this morning. Now, all your stones need to be put down because I don't want you to stone me yet today. So, husbands, when the wives in your life struggle through their waiting for whatever promises they are holding on to God for, it is your responsibility as the head of your home, to point them to God and to encourage them in their faith. It is not your responsibility to buckle to whatever harebrained idea we have. Okay? (laughs) Just being honest with you this morning. (laughs) But the wives, it's your turn to listen up. For the wives... It is our responsibility to recognise that our need is of God and that we need to submit to the authority that he has put in our lives, which is our husband as the head of our home. He is not there to lord it over us. He's not there to control us, but he is there to protect us and to lead us and to encourage us towards our faith. If these two, Sarai and Abraham, had done these things, I believe we'd be reading a very different account of the inheritance of the children of Abram today. Amen? All right, so let's go to where we see God's name as Elroy, the God who sees me. Verse 13, She, Hagar, gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. How amazing is our God. Here, when Hagar had run away to a desert place, pregnant through no choice of her own, broken and badly treated, no hope for her future, no one to support her, she would have no doubt felt completely alone, utterly isolated, hopeless, destitute. She had no family. She had no pregnancy support group. She had no government benefits. She was truly, completely and utterly alone. And add to her situation the fact that she's escaped from her master, which for a slave back then, the penalty was death. You know, we've all had some pretty bad days. And I think these days people have been through unthinkable trials that, we, that they face. But just have a look at Hagar in this absolutely unimaginable place. But here is where our amazing God shows her that he's the God that sees her. Let's have a look at who Hagar was. First of all, she was an Egyptian, she was a slave, she had grown up in a pagan religion, she was without protection, without family, she was a young pregnant woman and she was very much alone. Now, as an Egyptian back there, she was classed as a foreigner, as an immigrant. Now, if you've ever spoken to anyone who has moved countries, you can get just a glimpse of what it's like to be in an environment that is so completely unused to anything that you know. Nothing looks like it should And nothing is in the place that it should be. There's a different kind of longing and loneliness that comes to you when you're without family. And it doesn't matter how dysfunctional or difficult your family is. When you don't have that family, there is a romantic notion that we all hold of what a family should look like and be like. And when you're without them, the longing for that can be incredibly deep. 
Now, being Egyptian, Hagar had also been raised up with pagan gods. And although she and she was used to performing specific rituals, etc. And although it's a great thing that she was brought out of that, that's another sense of loss of familiarity for her, another sense of losing family and connection for her. Hagar was also a slave, which means she had no rights and no choices, but she had to do as she was told and she had to work the rest of her life away. And because she had no family and was a slave, she had no protection but that which her master offered her, which in this case led her to her very situation. Hagar was very much alone. She was entirely at the mercy of her master and so she fled to the desert where she was pretty much given a certain death. So no doubt, as extreme as Hagar's story is today, there's some aspect that all of us can relate to in some way. But Hagar's story has got two really great lessons for us. First of all, in verses 7 to 12, we see that God sees Hagar. And then secondly, in verses 13 to 16, we see that Hagar sees God. The name Elroy, the God who sees me, points us to the very character of our God. He is the one who chases after us, who follows us with goodness. He is the one who sees us when we feel completely alone or when we just need the reminder that God is close. The name Elroy says to us that God is watching over all, that he sees all the affairs of his people and that he knows all that we face. When Hagar had run away to the desert place, far from those she felt hurt and betrayed by, We see God surround her. He surrounds her with his grace and his care. He didn't leave her alone in all of her troubles and nor will he leave us to fend it for ourselves through our difficult times. This story of God's name reminds us that he is always close and that he sees us when we feel alone and he sees us when we feel like nobody else does and that he cares. Let's have a look at Psalm 139. It's a scripture that's very, very well known. We're going to read verses 1 to 16. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I feel like you could just sit and soak in that scripture for days and it would just take you anywhere you need to go. 
It is such an encouraging scripture. And if you've ever felt abandoned or mistreated, unheard or thrown around by life's ridiculous storms that come and go, that scripture is incredible. God's word is very, very clear that he knows us intimately and completely and that regardless of how we perceive how we perceive things or how we feel, there is nowhere that we can go that he is not with us, surrounding us. He most definitely is the God who sees us. The truth is that we all want to be seen, right? All throughout time, people have longed, the shyest of the shy people all have longed to be noticed, to be acknowledged. And here we see in Hagar's story and right throughout scripture, our God truly does see us. When we read God's word and we declare his truth over our lives, we can truly begin to understand God's character, that his heart breaks for us and that his heart rejoices in our days of joy and that he does see us. But the lesson doesn't stop there. The second truth is that Hagar sees God. The last part of verse 13 says, For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. God saw Hagar's affliction but as a result, Hagar saw God and she, she therefore saw his mercy toward her and she submitted to him. God sees every single pain and trial that we go through. And I know many times I've asked it myself and I'm sure other people have too, why do I have to walk through such pain if God is a good God? But I know from my own experience that, to be honest with you, the greatest times of testing in my life have actually produced the greatest fruit in my life. If I will recognise that God is with me and I will submit myself to what he wants me to learn and allow him to, to walk me through it, there's absolutely no sorrow, no trial, no pain that we walk through that God does not see us. We just read that in that beautiful Psalm 139. But the greatest purple that purpose that any purple that's interesting the greatest purpose that any trial can have is to bring us a closer walk with him it brings us a closer reliance on him and it causes us to lean into him and to recognize his mercy toward us it's a beautiful thing when you recognize god's mercy towards you this should cause us to be in awe of him and it should cause us to submit to him as Hagar did. I really love here that God um, also gives Hagar instruction as to what she's to do next. Because me, I like the processes. So it's nice to have instruction. <laughs> In verse 9, then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And then he gave her a promise in verse 10. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. It's an interesting thought there. The angel tells her to go back and submit. Oh, <laughs> you know, we've already seen that Hagar has called God Elroy because she knows, she acknowledges and finds comfort in the fact that he sees her. But Hagar teaches us another amazing lesson here in that she is told to go back to the place of her troubles and her pain. And that is no doubt the very last thing she would have expected God to say to her and for her to have to actually do. But because she is fully aware that God has seen her, it has caused her to acknowledge his presence with her. So that's one thing. She, she acknowledges his presence is actually with her and his mercy is over her life. 
And that causes her to submit to him and to do what he says. And I believe that she finds her strength to do that because she knows that God has seen her. And because of his mercy toward her, she has the strength to submit to him and the plans that he has for her. And I can be honest, I can't imagine what it would have been like for her to be in that situation. Yet God had so many lessons for her. And I wonder if at times it's because we think that God will take care of everything and we forget that in life we do actually face pain and we do face hardship because at the end of the day we live in a fallen world, a world that does not submit to God's ways, that doesn't look for his plans. And yet, as I said before, those times of struggle for us are the ones that produce the greatest lean into him if we choose to do that. They're the times that teach us the greatest strength. Just like our natural children, they grow through learning and through experience, through discipline, so, so too do we. Yet when we allow our children, our natural children, to experience these things, it does not make us absent or unloving parents. It simply shows that because we love them, we are willing to see them walk through some difficult times to grow their strength and to grow their character. You know, our son um, played his grand final for basketball Saturday last week and they won. Yes, it was intense, but they won and it was amazing. But you know what? Zach is 17 and he has played basketball since grade two. So what's that? Six or seven years old. And without the training and the discipline and the going to the basketball courts when no one else wanted to go and shooting hoops and practicing all of that, without that training, he would never have developed and grown to the place where he could win a grand final. And, you know, I I specifically remember one particular game that I was with him and um, he was having an off game. He wasn't great and he knew he wasn't great. And he sat down on the bench, he got his towel out, covered his head and I'm like, oh, here we go. (laughs) This is going to be good. He's grumpy, whatever. Anyway, I was trying to be the encouraging mum and you're kind of like, how much do I say? Do I not say? Because, you know, it's a public place. He might not like too much interference from his mother, whatever. And so I remember saying to him, are you okay, mate? And he's just like, I'm like, okay. So we get in the car and I loved his explanation to me afterwards because I didn't mention anything. I'm like, I know what it's like playing sport. You get a bit of white line fever, whatever. He said to me, mum, just need to let you know, when I do that, it's because I'm praying and I'm trying to get my head in the game because I'm off, I'm, my mind's all over the place. And I, he goes, so just, you just don't need to talk to me. Like, that's just what I'm doing. And I'm like, I loved that though. I'm like, he had the sense of mind. He was only like 13, had the sense of mind to put a towel over his head, block out the world and focus on God, get his head right and then he could play. And, you know, we moved into state for a couple of years when our children were little. It didn't affect Zach so much because he was only about three, but Georgia was, our daughter was seven at the time. And, you know, that was probably the toughest year of my little girl's life because Oh, feel emotional. Sorry. <laughs> it was like 15 years ago, but never mind. <laughs> um, she, went, she was raised in church life and she had her beautiful friends. She went to Sunrise and she was in a, a bubble. She had these beautiful friends that she'd had since she was two and amazing. And then she went to a school in another state where everybody already had their friends. And, you know, grade three, we can be a little bit nasty, us girls. So I would pick her, drop her off at school in the morning in tears and I would pick her up in the afternoon in tears because people had been mean. And she just wasn't used to this. 
But, you know, I would take her home and the number of times I would put her in the bath, put the worship music on, and Josh and I were really deliberate around that age of explaining to her the power of capturing your thoughts and guarding your heart and what the, what the Bible says to her. And we taught her that you need to know the Word of God to protect your heart and to not take on what other people say. So you need to go, and she was seven years old, you need to go to your room and you need to read your Bible and you need to see what God tells you about yourself. And my little girl amazed me. She would come back out of her room, I'm all good, Mum. And it wasn't just that fake, yeah, I, I just want to come out of my room because she wasn't being punished. It was, she just would come out and she had, at that age, she managed to capture the fact that she could rely on God and not be affected by what other people thought of her. And my, um, a couple of years later, we moved back and she went back to Sunrise, but a different campus. And the award that she got, her character award at the end of that year was security. And what that, that um, character trait actually means is a person who is secure in who they know God is and who they know they are. That is an amazing character trait to receive as a nine-year-old child. And you know what? Without that year of learning resilience, of learning to push through, of facing hard times, my daughter who's now 21 and is our children's pastor wouldn't have all the amazing skills that she has of noticing the one in the crowd who's missing, of bringing them in, of, of bringing security around other children. So the lessons that God teaches us through our very, very hard and difficult times are so, so valuable. And I wonder if we could just understand from that point of view, because I would have swapped that day out with my daughter in a heartbeat if I could take that pain on for her, but she would never have grown through that. And I could have kept her home from school every day and she would never have grown through that. And if we can understand that that is how God sees us, that that's what he does, he still wraps his arm of protection around us. He's still there, but he allows us to walk through those things. The entire purpose of our difficulty, it would seem to me, is that we recognise God's mercy and his ever presence and that that would cause us to submit to him his will and to spend our lives leaning into him and walking in his plans. But it goes even further. We also see here in verse 10, then the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. In that verse, we see that when the Lord spoke to Hagar and instructed her to submit, he then followed with a blessing. The key to our blessing in life, it seems to me, is to seeing God's promises unfold for us, is that we submit to him through our difficulties. We humble ourselves to our God and then we reap the blessing that follows. So the second lesson that Hagar teaches us is that because God sees our affliction, we can see his mercy and this should cause us to submit to him. It is not enough that we are just comforted by the fact that God sees us. It should compel us to respond to him. One of the greatest gifts we can give ourselves is to remind ourselves that God is always with us, that his mercy is always extended to us and that he always sees us. So today, as I begin to finish and the team can come and join me, I hope that you're both encouraged to see that God really does see you. You are not the only person on the planet that he doesn't care or see, care about or see. He does see you. 
And I, ho- and I hope that you see his mercy over your life. And I hope that that choo- helps you to choose to respond to him and to submit to his will for your life. And I really, really love to take the opportunity to pray for a couple of things. So I'm going to ask you for privacy's sake, if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes for me. Because the first people I would love to pray for is, I just want to give that opportunity, if there's anyone here who's not yet known that God has seen you, and that maybe you've not yet made the choice to submit your life to him. I would love to give you that opportunity this morning to choose to follow Jesus, to choose to say, yes, I would like to begin to give my life over to God today. And I would like to begin to getting to know him. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you've not ever had a relationship with God and you would like that, I would love to pray for you. So while every head is is bowed and every eye is closed, if that's you this morning, if you'd like me to pray for you, I would love for you to raise your hand this morning so I can know who I'm praying for. Okay. There's a couple of other things I would love to pray for this morning as well. If you're like Sarai and Abram and you've found that the choices you've made have led you down a difficult path and you need God's direction and his grace to get back on the path that he's planned for you, then I would love to pray for you. Or maybe you've just grown weary in your waiting for God's promises to unfold for you. If you've grown weary in that faith this morning, then I would love to pray for you. Or maybe you feel like Hagar today in any of the ways that we've talked about, lost and afflicted and in need of of the God who sees you, then I would love to pray for you this morning as well. So if you would like me to pray for you for any of those things, I'd love you just to raise your hand while everyone's got their eyes closed this morning and I would love to pray for you. Awesome. Okay, thank you for your honesty. All right, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for these amazing people, Lord God. I thank you, Lord, for the journey that their life has been on and for the plans and purposes that you have for them that are not affected by their past, Lord God. Lord, I just pray for each and every one of these people that's raised their hand this morning. If they are in need of of knowing you and of knowing the God who sees them, then, Lord God, I pray that you would make yourself known to them today, that you would wrap your arms around them, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would begin to draw on their heart and begin to let them know your very presence is with them, Father God. Lord, if we've made choices that have affected us, Father God, there's always consequence for those. But, Father God, I pray that there would be great learning come from that, Father. Lord, that we would see your purpose in the plans that you have for us, Father God. And, Lord, that they would cause us through our difficult times to humble ourselves to you, to see your mercy over our lives and to cause us to lean into you even more so, Father God. And Lord, for those of us that feel like Hagar, Lord God, where life storms have come and taken us out, where people's other people's choices and plans have affected us, Father, I pray, Lord God, that there would be purpose in that pain as well, Lord God. Lord, that you would draw close to them. And Father God, that each one of these situations, Lord God, that we would truly be able to see that you see us, that you care about us, God that you are deeply, intimately connected to us, Father God, and that your arms would surround us in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you, God. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? The team's going to lead us in one final song. Thank you.